director John Appleton. While I was cutting the pictures, the guys came in and said, you got to put some stuff together for us because uh, we got to show the salesmen all the new pictures. So uh, I realized that salesmen are watching this stuff after being up all night and they're all half asleep. I wanted to wake them up. And I said, okay, let's go shoot Rocky full screen. And, and, and I had Bill give me some trumpets blast. And everybody uh, liked it. So we convinced them to open it this way and then do the conventional titles later. And now the next image of Christ, that happened to be at this resurrection gym of East L.A. And I said, hey, that's where we'll start because I'll go from him to, uh, to Rocky and a subliminal connection will be made between the two. And I've already got a lot of the people on my side. I'm Bert Young. Welcome to MGM Home Videos, special edition of Rocky. On this track, you'll be listening to director John Avildsen, producers Aaron Winkler, Robert Chautoff, Talia Shire, Carl Weathers, and the steady cam inventor Garrett Brown, and me, of course. John Avildsen. Jimmy Crape just put a, um, a big light over the ring, and I think we shot it in half a day, and um, he knew just what I wanted. He'd seen the eight millimeter stuff that I had shot of, of the rehearsals. It was a great look, uh, down and dirty. I know when I was doing uh, Rocky V, I had been forced to take the DP on that. And this guy overlit, it was all over. I said, I wanted it to look like the first one because the guy's lost all his dough and he's back where he began. And he said in a very disparaging tone, well, that looked like a documentary. It worked, you know. So I, I was very fortunate to have uh, Jimmy Crabe uh, as a uh, DP on this. And I don't know, we must have done 10 or 12 pictures together. And whatever was the appropriate look, he was able to do it. Hi, I'm Erwin Winkler, co-producer of Rocky and Rocky 2, 3, 4, and 5 with Bob Chartoff. Uh, and we're here to do a little uh, commentary on the DVD 25th anniversary release of Rocky. Erwin Winkler and myself had an associate by the name of Gene Kirkwood. And Gene was friendly with Sylvester's agent. And pretty much as a favor to his agent, he, he asked that I'd, I'd meet him, Sylvester. And I really didn't have any interest in doing so until Gene encouraged me to see um, the movie Lords of Flatbush, which Sylvester co-starred in with some other very interesting actors. I saw the picture and I thought this man was a young Brando, perhaps. It was very impressive. And I was pleased to meet with him. And when I did, it just confirmed my feelings about him. He was nothing like the character he played, which was a street kid from Brooklyn. He was very bright, educated, great sense of humor, and I was quite impressed, but... Uh... We had no part for him. As he left the office, he mumbled something about being a screenwriter. Um, we mumbled back that we'd be very happy to see whatever screenplay he wrote, and he sent us in a screenplay, which was not Rocky, of course, which he later made into a film. Uh, it was called... Uh... Paradise Alley. Paradise Alley. I read it, and uh, I... I felt it was very interesting. Clearly, this was a new voice emerging. The writing was quite good, uh, but we weren't interested in making that into a film. So we invited him to come back in, uh, now as a writer. And he came in and we talked about the possibility of doing a film, and, and he said, you know, I have a story set in Philadelphia. 
he told us the story. We liked the story a lot, and we made a, a, a deal with him so that uh, if he wrote the script for nothing, we would star him in the film. So our investment was very minimal, to say the most. And we worked with him on the script. I mean, we'd get pages, we'd give him comments, but he wrote it very quickly. Just about six weeks to the day from that meeting, he brought me the first draft of Rocky. And hey. I read the script, and really what I loved about it most was that he lost. He lost the fight. I think if he hadn't, I'm not sure how well I would have personally responded to the script. Irwin was out of town at the time, and I sent him the script, and his response was equally as positive as mine, and we uh, agreed to option the screenplay. We really liked it and thought this was a really a nice little movie. Had no idea it would become the success it was. We then worked on it with Sylvester for uh, probably the next six months until we showed it to anyone. That's the story of the making of the film as far as the screenplay is concerned. I mean, it was, it was, we went step by step. Uh, had he asked for $5,000 to write the script, we probably would have thrown him out of the office. So we really had nothing to lose. Now, this is the stuff that we uh, shot in Philadelphia. And this was a, a pet shop right across the uh, street from this place that we made the gym. And when I was looking for locations uh, uh, there, I said, let's make that place the gym because then the pet shop really is right across uh, the street because it was written that way uh, in, the, uh, in the script. We did some interiors in uh, Philadelphia also. Well, I guess the only interior we did was the pet shop. The gym across the street is the exterior of the gym. The, the interior of the gym is in L.A. Bill Cassidy got that uh, thing painted up on the, uh, the wall of that building there. And one of these guys is uh, Frank Stallone, who's singing with his, uh, with his group. Sylvester, walking out of the dark here, was the uh, starving actor. And boy, I tell you, there's nothing like a starving actor. They are so appreciative. There's no lip. There were no trailers, so we had no trouble getting anybody out of their trailer. But the difference between Sylvester in the first movie and in Rocky V, when he was like the Prince of Liechtenstein, uh, you know, it's just enormous. Here he was there every minute and, and very attentive, and um, there was nothing else on his mind. And it showed. He was a starving actor. You can't be a starving actor. And Sly was incredibly cooperative about everything. It was his big chance. He knew it. Uh, he was on top of every scene that was shot. He was on top of all the actors, and he was tremendously enthusiastic, and I think that spirit uh, came through to the rest of the company. I think he told me that he rewrote like 300 pages of the, uh, of the script because we were always noodling with it. He was very receptive to my notions of, um, you know, why don't we do this, why don't we do that? Oh, and this place was down, speaking of locations, this was a location down in downtown L.A. in some kind of a flophouse type place, and it was a grim apartment. It was really in the bathroom, and the place stunk. Later, when he talks about how the, everything stinks, he wasn't kidding. But this was the scene that hooked me when I first read the script, when he's uh, talking to his turtles. I was very charmed, very charmed by it. Cuff and Link. Hey, your old man did pretty good tonight. 
Why weren't you there, huh? And in the script he wrote, he seemed like a very likable guy. He made these bad jokes. He didn't break the guy's thumb. And he had a dog and fish. And, you know, he was a very sympathetic character. So I just helped him elaborate on that. You want to see your friend? We had a tremendous amount of difficulty in getting Rocky made. People said, oh, who wants to see a film about a broken-down fighter in Philadelphia that has a love affair with a an ugly duckling and he's not the prettiest person in the world and women won't go see films that have boxing in it. You're shooting it in Philadelphia which nobody wants to go to Philadelphia except the Republicans. And he loses the fight at the end. I mean, what's the point of it? So those same rules as Woody Allen says when everybody tells you there's a million reasons not to make a movie that's the million reason to make a movie. Now he showed me a number of these pictures of himself as a kid and so forth and I said well great let's, let's put them up there and sold him on this idea of this sort of reflective uh, moment. I remember when we were uh, shooting it, Bob Chardoff was standing right next to me looking at his watch, thinking like this was the dumbest thing in the world to uh, be doing. But I thought this would, again, get us sympathy for this guy, to see this fellow who's going nowhere fast, looking back at his life, and uh, I thought it'd be uh, make him that much more sympathetic. My name is Adrian Balboa. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like that. No, my name is Talia Shire. I hate auditions. I, can, I don't do them well. I'm very bad at them. But this one was one of the best, it was the best one of my life. And I went in there, and then out came this very strange creature, Sylvester Stallone. I never forgot this. He came back, he came out of the doorway in reverse. He was sort of jogging backwards out. <laughs> I must tell you, he was, he, was, he was the most amazing person to behold. And he was breathtaking. You go, oh my God. And then he turned around and uh, introduced himself as the creator of this extraordinary piece that he had designed it like a tailor that would fit him and drape, drape upon his own myth. And, um, and we started to do various scenes with John Avelson there, of course, directing us, and it just was so right. There was a connection between us. And uh, it was like, it was, I, I, I often think of it as, as ballet dancing, what it must be to, to you know, be doing a great pas de deux, you know, you're Margot Fontaine and Barishnikov. You know, this wonderful feeling that the person that you are being partnered by is, is working with you in such a perfect way, and you're doing it back for them. You know, knowing how to lift and partner and, and to make the other feel safe, because you have to do that when you do eccentric characters. The balance has to be there. Anyway, so it was that wonderful feeling of, 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 a, of a pas de deux. And then I got the job. I got the job. And I kind of had a suspicion as I walked out of the gate of MGM, right, where all of the, you think about Judy Garland went to work here, you think of all the, those things just go through your mind. And I remember the policeman at the gate did some sort of mannerism that looked like singing in the rain, and I was joyous. I knew, you know, I had I'd done really well, and um, uh, I went home, and I, shortly thereafter, it, it was my, my role. That's never happened to me, quite like that. Quite like that. And we were in Philadelphia, but we were in some of the most bizarre locations, I must say. <laughs> you know, that pet shop, that, uh, that was a pungent experience, to say the least. We were the first to use the Steadicam that Garrett Brown created. And it was extraordinary to see because, you know, you had to wear it with a harness and so forth, and it was based on this new principle of a gyroscope. It was just so exciting, you know, all of these things were being invented and happening. 
I'm Garrett Brown. I invented the Steadicam in 1973 and ended up using it on Rocky. One has a memory of this kind of work that it sticks with you in a funny way. I actually remember that I wanted to work on this scene, but something we weren't quite ready here. And I was a bit discouraged that I didn't get a chance to follow him up that pier. But I think Avelton wisely kept that stuff in the background, the study cam, until it was a sort of theme in his reconstruction of himself, his, his renaissance. Hey! Hey! Don't hit the face! Not the face! The guy that wants the 200 now. At that time, we had an exclusive agreement with United Artists. We had what's called a put picture. Uh, any picture that was under a certain budget, we automatically can get an okay on. And they were looking for us, this is Charter Frankler Productions, to bring in pictures with superstars, giant films. When we said, okay, if you don't want to make it, we're going to make it as one of our put pictures, the price of the put picture was a million and a half dollars. So they budgeted at $2 million, so it was no longer a put picture. And then Barbara and I said, well, in that case, we'll make it for a million dollars, and we'll guarantee that anything over the million dollars we'll pay for ourselves. So then they had no choice but to agree to that. But of course, they made us sign personal notes and everything else that we would guarantee that if there was any overages on it. I convinced them that we could shoot there and not try to double L.A. for Philadelphia. And you see, uh, you see breath. It's, you know, it's supposed to be uh, November, Thanksgiving, New Year's. That's time frame that the picture happened. And then, you know, how can you beat uh, things like that? That's a it's a great uh, image with the uh, the bow of the ship and and these. Um, <laughs> I remember Sylvester once saying, "Chair, it's really nice that those trains always seem to go by." Well, obviously they all got uh, timed, and we had some guy on a walkie-talkie saying, "Okay, here it comes! Hurry up!" And uh, now I'm lying on the hood of this car shooting uh, these scenes. And I, I had these earphones on, and they were wired inside. And I was lying on the hood, and I was yelling that somebody hurry up and do this. And uh, I remember hearing Sylvester saying, Yeah, I really like it when directors get passionate, or words to that, to that effect. I did real good. United Artists principal officers at that time were in New York. The man responsible out here in Los Angeles was Mike Metavoy. And Mike loved the material, as we did, but he had to convince the New York contingent. And they wanted to know more about Stallone before they agreed to this. And they were doing it reluctantly, even considering it, only because we had made this overall deal. So what we did was we sent them a copy of Lords of Flatbush to New York City. Lords of Flatbush, as you may recall, uh, had Perry King in it and uh, Henry Winkler and three or four other young, very talented artists uh, who were on the rise, but at that point no one knew them. Five of them, five executives from United Artists, went into a screening room to watch the picture. The picture was on for about 20 minutes, and Arthur Krim, who was ostensibly the boss of the company, said, which one is Stallone? There was a silence, and then one voice in the back piped out, it must be that blonde-haired kid over there pointing to Perry King because he was the only one who looked like he might be a movie star. Arthur Krim gave him a hard look. He said, I like him, interesting young man. But Stallone, it sounds like an Italian name. This kid doesn't look Italian. And that wonderful voice in the back, whoever it may have been, said, well, you know, in Northern Italy, there are a lot of blonde, blue-eyed Italians. Krim said, that's true. He said, well, he's terrific. Okay, let them know that we're gonna make the movie. 
that's how we finally got to go ahead to make the film. And this is one of my um, favorite shots in the uh, picture because it was such a grim, grimy uh, place. And he's really in the dumps and he, uh, and he walks away. That image of the receding uh, fence uh, going away and him going away, I always uh, like that image. And you can see some snowflakes uh, falling. Here's uh, Jimmy Gambina, who was our, uh, one of our, our fight choreographers. Um, and this is, uh, again, uh, uh, Philadelphia with some fight stuff in front of this place, which I think was, a, I don't know what that place was. But now we're back in L.A., at a place down in downtown uh, L.A. And this is where I got Sylvester to put this little uh, note in his hat. In case he ever forgot his uh, combination, he'd, uh, he'd be able to remember it. I think I got that from him because I'm always forgetting combinations uh, of things that I have to remember. When it was time to hire the Mickey character, we originally gave the script to Lee Strasberg, who had just done Godfather 2 and was a little bit hot. I think he had just gotten the nomination. And he was very interested in doing it, but his agent wanted a price that was too high for us. In my heart, I always thought the part would be right for Burgess Meredith, but Lee Strasberg was a bit hotter at that time and certainly would have been wonderful for it. But since this price was over our budget, this was an opportunity to send it over to Burgess. So I called him. I live in Malibu, as did he, and I dropped off the script at his home. That night he read it, clearly loved the script. Just when he finished reading it, his phone rang. He had a call from Lee Strasberg. They started chatting about life. And Burgess said, what are you going to be doing next? And Lee said, I've got this great picture that I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Rocky, <laughs> and Burgess didn't say anything, <laughs> uh, but the next day his agent called and said he wanted to do it, and he worked for our price, and, uh, and that was the end of it. I remember Bert Young and I, we said, uh, gee, we've got to tell everybody we're making a movie with Burgess Meredith, because that's the only person of the whole movie anybody even knows <laughs> in the world, you know, because usually you, you'll, you'll call friends up and, and uh, they'll say, so what are you doing? I'm doing Rocky. What? Who's in there? Sylvester Stone. Who's that? I mean, you've got to understand. I mean, Burgess was our, for all of us, he was very, very, very important. First of all, this is a great actor. I had followed his work, movie work, and some of the things that he did in New York, his uh, things that he did with James Joyce, all those tributes and plays. So, I mean, he was... This is a man with a body of work that's stunning and with a certain kind of discipline and approach and preparation that young actors, you long to see. You know, you come to work with all these dreams, but when you really see somebody who's, who's, who's had 50 years of making movies and is, hits his marks and knows his lines and comes with such love, actors truly care about fashioning these characters. When Burgess Meredith came in, who I'd met working for Otto Preminger on Hurry Sundown, so when Burgess came in, uh, I said, okay, you've, you've done this scene a couple of times, this particular scene. I said, why don't you guys uh, just uh, improvise it? So they improvised the scene, and as, as Sylvester went to uh, leave, uh, Burgess said, hey. You ever think about retiring? No. You think about it. I said, oh, perfect. <laughs> 
perfect line. That's, and that's what got him the part, because that would be just the kind of crack that Mickey would make. And I'll tell you something else about a low-budget piece that's dear to my heart. You get to dress yourself. <laughs> you, get, you get to go out and get your own clothes. And being drama school trained, I always love that process. You know, the character's a statement of, of yourself. And Avelson was so wonderful and urged us all to go to, to places and, and uh, pick up the clothing we thought our character would wear. And by the way, this often happens when you're on a big-budgeted movie with, with designers, too. You, but this, this was really low-budget, so, you know, it was going to be our own stuff because they needed every available dollar for Sylvester's glued-on wounds. So I called my eye doctor, William Alpert, and he got me those glasses. And then I was off and running, and I started to put together my character. And if you look closely at it, you'll see her watch is on her lapel. I think it's safety pin there. There are rubber bands on her wrist. Yeah, that's my baby. And the gla and it just so started to occur. I just had this idea of what she needed to look like. And when I brought the clothes into a rehearsal, there was a gasp. I was, oh. <laughs> you know, I had this idea. And John Avelson really did urge me on with this sort of clothing. And in, in going back to the idea of a pas de deux, really, if you look at Sylvester, who is uniquely clad, there is a scale and a size to his character, which I wanted to balance with a size of my own. It is diminutive, but it's equally as bizarre. And I thought that way we could and I could balance what he was doing perfectly. This is a, another a great example of what you get when you're your own operator. Because just shooting the scene and fooling around with the camera, I saw the mirror back there and uh, and moved it and and. And, you know, if, if I wasn't doing it myself, I would never have gotten that shot. And I, I loved that it was low budget. I wasn't allowed to have any makeup on in the front end. I remember John Avelson was really good about that. It was perfect for us to tell the story, to execute this particular story. I mean, if it had been a lot of money, I'm not so sure it would have worked out this well. And the guy lying on the ground here is Lloyd Kaufman, who... Uh, is head of Troma Pictures, and he was my production manager on our locations in Philly. And this is him being carried in in a bar in Los Angeles. And I said, we can't afford to bring it. I said, that's all. He's such a ham. He paid for himself to come out so he could be carried into this bar in Los Angeles. Good fight. Hope you've won it at least. Oh, yeah, it did real good. Here was another example of where uh, Jimmy Crabe came to the rescue because we had very little time to shoot this uh, scene, and they were talking about cutting this scene in the bathroom. Jimmy said, don't worry, so we just threw up, like, one light, and uh, we shot it and had the time to do it. And I think it was a great, great way to uh, uh, meet Bert Young. Hey, yo, this paunchy guy, oh, my God. We were out of time. We were going to scrub the scene. We had no budget. And I said, just put the camera here. I'm not going to move. I'm going to stay right here because I wanted that scene. I wanted what it was saying. And that's how that scene came about. I never left the mirror. And that way they, we got the shot in like six minutes. <laughs> and when I see it, I still, I'm still embarrassed. Uh, and I didn't care if the camera was on my back or my can. I just, I, I wanted it. And I, and I saw that broken mirror. I said, I'll stay right here. You don't have to move, you don't have to reset, you don't have to do crap. Let's do it. It actually showed uh, to get close to Gazzo. 
and to get out of being a butcher, he was giving his sister away. He was desperate. He was desperate. He started out with desperation. That, that fear. He was a very frightened man. Well, I had worked for Irwin and Robert Chardoff for two or three other movies. They sent me the script. I read it. I knew it was street literature. It was gorgeous. It was 98 pages. It was a poem. It wasn't a fighter. It was a man standing up. I never knew what a blockbuster was in those days, what would go through the roof. I didn't know that. I knew this was the finest thing I ever read. I had a, a boss agent at William Morris at the time, and he passed away. And he didn't respond to uh, Charles and Winkler's calls, you know. Everyone says, Bird, your agent ain't calling back. I get the agent on the phone. He says, What are we talking about? A million dollar movies? What are we talking Like it was pocket change, you know? I says, Hey, Stan, we're talking about probably the biggest thing that ever came by my life. This is Lavelle Roby, who's Apollo's wife, who appears in uh, The Formula as Marlon Brando's secretary. Little known cinema fact. Stay in school and use your brain. And this is early uh, video playback. Meantime, when all this is going on, I'm in the commissary in California somewhere, and Sylvester comes over, and I didn't know him. He kneels by the table. He says, Mr. Young, he says, I'm Sylvester Stallone. I wrote Rocky, you know. I said, oh, shit, congratulations. Said, it's beautiful. He says, Bert, you got to do it. You got to do the movie. I said, shh, I'm just twisting their arm, getting a couple of bucks. I'm going to do it. He lit up like a pumpkin. That's our first meeting. Want me to take a shot? All right. I'll take a shot. This was a scene they wanted to cut out. This is a study cam shot. I'm often horrified to look at my early work because I hadn't really figured out how to operate this thing. And in a moment, we're going to see Chris Abelson, who's the only blonde in this Italian neighborhood and coincidentally happens to be my nephew. I would definitely boot out anybody caught doing a shot that bad today. Hey, I was just learning, you know. I couldn't go to a workshop like they do today. And this is Jody Letizia, who was the daughter of an old friend of uh, Sylvester's, who was like a location guy in, in Philadelphia, who's now a nightclub entertainer. Considering the viewfinder that I had in low light like this had virtually nothing on it, a few stray pixels just to mystify you, but it was pretty much aimed by prayer and intuition. This is the scene, I believe, where you'll faintly hear the sound of the camera in the background. And uh, they wanted to, uh, to cut this scene out because they didn't see the sense of it. And I figured, well, this is a, this is a, a pivotal scene because you, you see this guy uh, trying to save this lost sheep. You never think of a guy like this giving a damn about a, a kid. But here he is uh, trying to steer this little kid straight. So this is a likable guy. Well, we, I don't think we even rehearsed these shots. We just went at it. Probably did it twice, if that. Twenty years from now, twenty years from now, people are gonna say, "Hey, do you remember Marie?" No. I remember showing this scene to Pauline Kale, uh, and she liked it. I said, "Well, will you please talk to the producers because they're gonna uh, put this thing on the cutting room uh, floor." So uh, uh, she did, and the scene um, survived. And Ralph Boda was my uh, 
my gaffer on this stuff in uh, Philadelphia. And he went on to um, get uh, nominated for uh, The Coal Miner's Daughter as a DP. He had been my, uh, uh, my gaffer in a lot of uh, low-budget films in New York, including Joe. Film stock was an issue. I didn't have any focus-pulling abilities either, so we had to just pick a hyperfocal distance and stick with it, more or less. You hope I don't keep back like a whore, I'll turn into one. And uh, here he is, after he, he takes the trouble of walking the girl home and giving her some, uh, some good advice, and she says, uh, go screw yourself. I, I just thought it was a great scene. And, and that's why Sylvester wrote it, you know. There's nothing like a tough guy who's discouraged and scared. It's a great, great combination. Filmmakers don't permit us to see tough guys in that state very often. This scene was shot in uh, Erwin Winkler's office at MGM. It was on the ground floor, and they said, well, you can't shoot towards the windows. They said, well, wait a second, this is MGM. They've got all the backdrops in the world, and sure enough, they had this book of backdrops. And I found this thing, and these guys uh, wheeled out this huge uh, thing, and it looks like uh, we're in Philadelphia. time Apollo was invested. Carl Weathers. Meeting Sly for the first time, I didn't know who the hell he was. I was standing, I remember that. I was in the offices of Chartoff Winkler, the producers. As I remember, the people there were Stallone, John Avelson, the director, Bob Chartoff, Erwin Winkler. I think that was it. And Sylvester sat down with a script at a desk, and he was the guy I was going to read across from. There's something about walking into a room when you really want something, where you're pumped. And I was pumped. <laughs> So guys introduced to me, so okay, so big deal. <laughs> Sylvester starts to read, and I'm just chewing at it, man. I mean, just chewing at it. And, and he looked up at me. I remember so distinctly, there was a look on his face when he looked up at me at the end of the reading. And I thought, in a way, I just went, you know, to myself, well, what's going on with this guy? And it wasn't like an aggressive thing. It was like, what did I do? You know, I mean, it was, I felt I'd somehow done something that maybe I wasn't supposed to do or done something that was weird or odd or whatever. I mean, I'm an actor, too, so there's that insecurity when you walk into a room and people are, you know, kind of have you under a microscope. And John Abelson, I remember so distinctly, was sitting over on a couch and he just had a little smirk on his face and chuckled a little bit. And then I really got insecure and thought, what the hell did I do? I mean, these guys are laughing at me and looking at me weird. And I remember saying, you know, if you get a real actor, I can do a lot better. I swear. And, and, and needless to say, once I found out that this was not only the writer but the star of the movie, oh, how do you backpedal out of that one, you know? But he was incredibly generous. <laughs> After that initial insult when I said about Stallone, you know, if you get me a real actor, as I read from across from him, I could really do a much better job. He never made one comment about that. Him, he meaning Sly. Sylvester never made one comment about that. And the story behind the making of Rocky seemed to also uh, inure to an audience. The, the, the fact that um, uh, Stallone was offered $250,000 when he didn't have a penny to his name by the studio uh, to sell the script to them uh, and his refusal to do it was a, was a million to one shot. 
And that became the theme of the film, that this is a million to one shot. The deal we had made with him was that he would write the script for us with the understanding that he would star in the film. So we were very steadfast in saying it had to be him. And I think he, well, not I think, I, he knew that we were backing him, that ultimately maybe we would get shot down, but basically he had an ally uh, and a contractual one as well that he would star in the film if it got made. So yes, he turned down this tremendous bribe because he had no money, as I say, um, but he also knew that there were two very able producers that wanted to make the film with him. So he always knew that. 50 bucks. You and your girl, Adrian, you have a nice time, yeah? Thanks. Hey, how'd you know her name? You don't think I had that? There's Joe Spinell. Joe Spinell was a, a, a friend of uh, Sylvester's and uh, recommended him. He, uh, he brought a lot to this part. He, uh, he did a great job. Some more coffee, Mr. Creed. No, Here we are back in uh, Irwin's office, shooting the other way, away from the windows, because uh, we couldn't light up uh, backdrops. Not the big Chuck Smith. Yeah. Uh, he's too old and dumb. I told him I was a boxer. I told him I'd boxed in Canada. I mean, it's kind of hard to maybe look up some of this stuff, because if you're a guy who's just boxed in these little clubs in Canada, how are they going to figure that out, you know? Well, ha, huh, took me for a workout to see if I could box, and... Needless to say, I didn't know anything about boxing. I mean, I just like any kid, I'd emulated Ali and, you know, did all that sort of stuff. It's any kid fantasizing and, and playing at, you know, like playing cowboys or playing soldier or any of that stuff. You know? And I was an actor, so of course I could box. I can do anything, you know. I, ju I jump from planes without parachutes and land on the ground with the greatest of ease. And um, I told them I'd done all this stuff and... So we went to a gym, and uh, then they found out that this guy is really ridiculous. Hey, who is doing that bat, huh? I used to be deadly a stickball. The first thing I, I, I try to do is, when I pick up a script, I, I, I try to be as close to sleep as possible. I try to relax so I can feel what the author intended, you know, and it, it travels through me without my own encumbrances. And I make notes. I say, oh, the guy's frightened. Oh, the guy's here. Oh, the guy's an empty barrel. Oh, the guy's a, a braggart. Oh, the guy's a coward. I make notes, and I usually do that at the first reading. In the case of Paulie, fear was paramount. I felt fear. The character had a lot of fear. He'd cover it over with weight. He'd cover it over with bluster. I think he was a very frightened guy. So I'd find something in myself that I'm frightened of. And I would try to be relaxed enough to chase my courage, chase the other things away, and make this the uh, uh, the main thrust of this, this man. Uh, in the case of Pauling, I put on layers and layers of clothes. I made him arthritic. When he turned, when he walked, he has no neck. I made him, because he was in the the butcher shop, and he was always, uh, he didn't want that. And so I made him, every time you talk, his whole trunk turned at you. Made a big wide gate with this guy. I put the turpentine on my hands so they feel tight and the pores, to remind me that I'm arthritic, you know. And, and I, with, with Paulie, I, uh, I don't like sweet drinks, like vermouth and stuff. 
I would put vermouth on my neck and on, so I feel disgusting. I feel disgusting with myself. It was, I, so I was never too pleased. They're all drawn in a very interesting way. I mean, here's where, where the costumes were paying off, and, the, and, the, 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 and John Avelson really did urge us to, you know, stay as stripped as possible with the, And I wanted to wear makeup, God knows, during that scene. But, I mean, he, uh, you know, he wanted that feeling of, of, of being a discarded human being. And I remember when Paulie opened the door. Oh, God, just the embarrassment. I don't, it's very strange, because this never happened to me like that in my life, but... The understanding of that kind of embarrassment being so shamed uh, when her brother throws the turkey out the window and, you know, in an effort to try to make her relax and date this young man was so, it was so sad and overwhelming and humiliating. Also, I didn't know he was going to do that. So I have to tell you something. That was one of Bert's little touches. <laughs> Don't go rock. <laughs> I can tell you funny things with this thing, this scene. We had one turkey, only one turkey. So each take, they'd catch the turkey when I threw it out the window with a blanket. Two guys were there, and they'd re-spike it, the leg on it, you know. So that's why I didn't eat that much, because I'd have to. So I would. I would fake, because I knew the guys were out there with the blanket to catch it. I'd fake, and they'd be jumping all over the place off camera, and they'd be cursing, you know, because I'd, I'd make out. <laughs> Just to torture them. You know? <laughs> Listen, uh... I don't know what to say, because I ain't never talked to no door before, you know? I think she adores him because she's always noticed him before and he's noticed her before and there is a, a curious connection. But what the brother does is so shameful and so embarrassing. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an odd way to set a date. You sort of set it in the key of humiliation. At this time, she didn't know it, but I loved her, tell you. And to say these things to her was so hard for me. Because I really, truly loved her, you know, from afar. And to tell her spider legs and all that, oh, my God, get out. I, I, I felt so much like a bully, which I don't like to be, you know. It was a hard scene for me. It really was. <laughs> what I loved about the, the scene is it is so full of humiliation and shamefully, uh, the brother is shaming his sister. It is just so horrendous. And it's sort of like, how do you set a date in the key of such humiliation? And yet, that's what is happening. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror, just the, 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 the shift of the glasses and this hat, and wanting the audience to feel that this character was going off to some sort of spiritual death. You know, she was going out to be humiliated. Listen, uh, I don't want no turkey anyway, you know. But it was Thanksgiving. And how do you recover from that? I mean, she really, she really, 
had her own little relationship with Rocky before, but what the brother did <laughs> with the turkey out the window and screaming at her was just so, so horrendous. How do you ever pull out of that and have some sort of encounter? A romantic one, and yet we do. Yo, it looks kind of quiet, you know? I think it's closed. No, I think maybe we're just early or something like that, you know? You! You! We're closed. What? Their first date was originally yeah. written to take place in a restaurant. And I said, gee, you don't want this in a restaurant. I don't know how many pages it, it, it went on, but two people talking across a table is deadly. Uh, I said, you know, maybe they go bowling. Let's get them out of the restaurant. So uh, we decided that they'd go ice skating. So we were going to shoot this in, uh, in Philadelphia. And there was a nice little rink in downtown Philadelphia with a lot of people skating around. And, uh, we went to uh, an outdoor arena, and we started to do the scene, and we, we couldn't complete it. We knew we had to make a picture for a million dollars. Well, there was one scene that was perhaps one of the more, most expensive scenes in the picture. It was an ice skating scene. Rocky and Adrian are on their first date, and they go to an ice skating rink. The rink is filled with people. They're skating around. She's not a very good skater. And there's a skating instructor who becomes very obnoxious with the two of them. And Rocky has some words with him. And it was a wonderful scene, but it cost a lot of money to shoot. We needed skaters, we needed extras, all kinds of stuff. Well, we couldn't afford it. They said, well, we can't shoot this in, uh, in L.A. We can't afford all the uh, extras, so let's put it back in the restaurant. I said, oh, you don't want to avoid the restaurant. I said, maybe the, the rink is closed, and that's why there's nobody there. Maybe he has to uh, con the guy. And Sylvester uh, responded to that uh, notion, and that's how, um, how we came to keep it in an ice skating rink, but it was empty. It became so much more uh, magical mythical, uh, with Sylvester opening the ring up and uh, sort of the two of us being thrown on this first date on Thanksgiving at, at a skating arena. But this was all sort of justified because Rocky didn't have a lot of money. The movie didn't have a lot of money. And this gave us, uh, you know, a great place to, uh, to work in. And it's inherently funny. Uh, you can't have too much funny. You're left-handed, huh? Well, that's absolutely true, you know. Watch out. Watch out. We were playing physically correctly. There was a, a rhythm and a harmony. There was, again, you know, the sort of sense of dancing, of looking down, of my being embarrassed, of his trying to kid me out of that embarrassment. And in doing that, uh, doing so, he would, he would find his own joy. You know, that's what happens, too, when you fall in love. You discover things and trying to sort of structure the other person's depression or whatever it is. And that was what was so wonderful about this whole section is, is really it did begin with such utter humiliation and comedy. <laughs> I love comedy. I love comedy. And I somehow felt, again, that they were such an odd pair. The way they would do their pas de deux was just... You know, I always wanted to see this. I, nobody's ever done it, but I always wanted somebody to do it on an on on Olympic ice show. You know, painting, skating pairs or something. I was like, where's Adrian and Rocky? Because it was so sweet. So wonderfully sweet and exactly what it's like on a date. You're on thin ice. 
You could fall down. Now, who is this remarkable character that she's with who's, who's walking with her? You know, when you're very shy and you feel inadequate and you have no self-esteem and you're given a gift by the other person of his own uniqueness, that he's just there with all his own eccentricity, it's so liberating. You know, it's, it's, you don't have to watch whether you've got the salad fork. And I think that was also so sweet between the two of them and the ice skating that he would not have his skates on. <laughs> he would tell her about being left-handed and his broken finger. And it really was uh, so endearing that he would be that bizarre and she wouldn't feel that strange with him. And here's the, uh, uh, the beginning of the great seduction scene that uh, every young man uh, can relate to as he tries to get the girl to go upstairs. I say you're very sharp by nature, you know. <laughs> I suppose. And here's uh, Frank Stallone uh, coming out of the shadows. Get a job, you bum! You know, some people think that... I remember uh, one time we were in Philadelphia, we were doing a rehearsal. It was late at night, and we were, Sylvester and I were, I think it was just the two of us walking down the street. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, the police came. <laughs> and, you know, my God, he, they thought something was going on. Was I being attacked? What was going on? The police came, and then John Avelson ran across it. No, 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 no. They're rehearsing. <laughs> They're rehearsing for this movie called Rocky. And it was just so interesting, but they had seen from the policeman's point of view, it had seemed like a strange encounter between a man and a woman. Well, indeed, in the movie, that is the part uh, before the big kiss. That's the walk home where she's tentative. That's the moment before the moment before. And, uh, and the police had decided that we look suspicious, but love makes you suspicious. But you know, all actors are shy. You know why? Because we can get into everybody's skin. So really, actors feel very deeply. Uh, there's a wonderful, someone said an actor is an athlete of the heart. Artaud said that. Of course, he was totally insane. But he, it's true, because you feel the other as yourself. And then you try to put some frame around it, some perspective. Hey, you want to come inside? No, I gotta go. Hey, come on. Hey, I gotta I, this, is, this little moment of going up that stairway, and I remember thinking, okay, I've got to make this a climb to something totally new for her soul. If she doesn't go up that stairway, if she doesn't go there, she will go home and she will die a living death, and no one will even notice. And I was using all the acting... Uh, you know, actions and intentions, that to walk up this stairway, going up those steps, those were centuries worth of, of steps in time, and, you know, each step was the, the courage to shed fear. You know, you, you try to make it that way when you're acting. You try to give it a little something, and of course not fall. <laughs> but again, that, that walk up was a statement of, I'm going to live. There, I think there are moments uh, that you, uh, you don't take 
and you don't live. And again, no one knows the difference. And here we are in this wonderful apartment, which had a scattering of real bugs on the floor. Hot in here, you know? I could go for some music. Also, out the window of this place uh, was a palm tree. So uh, I had them put these, uh, this brick wall to, um, to get rid of the palm tree, and it also made his uh, place that much more miserable. His two little cufflinks. I just thought his writing was so, you know, it just, it was poetry. It was so brilliant. And I, my response when I read it the first time was, oh, my God, who wrote this? Who wrote this language? It just moves beautifully. Um, but Sylvester had said something, and I think uh, it was very true during 1976. Carter had just been voted in. He was a peanut farmer, and there was a feeling of the mythical America, you know, that, I mean, really all of America is a bunch of people who were discarded and left other places and came in with a dream. And that this was a country that you could go 15 rounds in, that you were entitled to go the distance. It may not happen, but at least you were entitled. The freedom of going the whole way. And I think Sylvester really captured that wonderful period of 1976 and Carter coming in with these two funny little discarded (laughs) people, you know? Whoever would have thought that he would become this great fighter and she would become so beloved, but that's the American dream. It's the, the folk tale here. I think you might be worried. Well, I'll call your brother if that's the problem. Yo, Paul Lee, your sister's with me. I'll call you back later. See ya. God, when he yells for my brother there at the window, I think it is so funny. It's wonderful. See, this is funny stuff. I was very hot, and I wasn't feeling well, and I was in all of this this clothing, and the scene was designed that I'm always moving backwards. And um, I always wanted you to feel that she is taking him in, that she loves this guy, that he is just such, I mean, she can't help herself when she looks at him, her eyes, he, he pours herself into her, and she will move away, and he'll come closer. And, you know, she is just overwhelmed by him and adores him, and that kind of feeling that this is Mount Rushmore, you know, moving towards her. And he never lets her off the hook. I mean, he knows he's impressive. And here he's looking at this funny-looking person. <laughs> and he's doing his Marlon Brando. I mean, it's the most... It, it's, again, very strange to look at with his arms always stopping her. And the feeling that I wanted to achieve there was, was this going to be another humiliation? You know, there's a feeling, because Paulie, when he, 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 there's always a feeling that that brother might have been trying to humiliate her. And here, this is the first relationship she's having with a male that is not a brother or an animal. And 
Is this going to be a humiliation, a sacrifice, or this is going to be something more wonderful? Don't tease me. Tease me. You tease me. So they're both very bare. I want to kiss you. Both of them. You don't want to kiss me back if you don't want. I want to kiss you. I think that is what a kiss is, a first kiss. What an extraordinary thing a kiss is, huh? I think when you lean in, you can feel the energy of that person. There's enchantment, enchantment. And it comes to people in the funniest places and everybody's entitled. You know, even these two people who should have been considered discarded human beings are entitled to a moment of enchantment. You know, there are times when an, uh, certain roles that you play will shape you. If you play a king or a queen, there's a certain size and status and scale, and it will change you. This character had this kind of terrible illness of shyness, you know, and had a wonderful moment of liberation, so it changes you. The actor is also changed as a person, you know, because it's a very lovely, uh, transformative ritual. I never finished the story. After we got the okay, we made the picture, and finally, when we had our cut, we sent it to New York, proudly sent it to New York for them to see. The picture began, and as you remember, it begins with the, the boxing scene in, the, uh, in that gym. Um, and Arthur says, when's Rocky coming into the picture? And that beloved voice in the back said, oh, I'm sure he's coming in any minute now. And it wasn't until someone says, yo, Rocky, that uh, everyone realized they were stuck with this fellow, not with Perry King. You know, I've been coming in for six years, and six years you've been sticking it to me. I want to... Originally, uh, when he goes to meet the uh, promoter, and the promoter says, how would you like to fight uh, Apollo Creed? Rocky said, oh, yeah, yeah. And I remember riding into work that uh, day thinking, wait a second, Rocky's not a dummy. He's a, he's a smart guy. He's not educated, but he's not a dummy. And he realizes he has no business fighting a guy like Apollo Creed, so he'd say no. Now, now the promoter's got a condom. Now the promoter's got to hustle him uh, and convince him to do it, and we're going to feel that much more for Rocky because he's being taken advantage of. So uh, I got to the, uh, the set, uh, Irwin's office, and uh, ran that by uh, Sylvester. He said, oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. Yeah, let's do it that way. And he changed a couple of the lines, and now, uh, now he gets hustled, and uh, we feel for him. We feel that he's being taken advantage of, and we're going to pull for him that much more. He was terrific. He he was the uh, the writer and the star, and I can't. I can't, there, I'm sure there were some, but I can't think of a suggestion that I made that he uh, rejected, because I think we saw it the same way, you know. Uh, and we were really had uh, had an accord, so it made it uh, you know a real uh, pleasure, you know, because if you get enough no's, you stop suggesting. 
But I've always made it very clear and made the speech at the beginning of every movie to the crew and everybody. I said, you got an idea, let me, let me hear it. And don't get uh, turned off if I say no. Keep them coming because, you know, um, if you don't like it, uh, you say no. And if you do um, and it works, then you're a hero. Well, I just did. I know you're looking for sparring partners, and I just want to say I'm very available, you know. I'm sure you are. Absolutely. Uh, sparring with the champ would be an honor, and you know what, Mr. Jerkins? What? I wouldn't take no cheap shots either. I'd really be a good sparring partner, you know. You don't understand. And this is Thayer David, uh, who is the arsonist in uh, Save the Tiger. In and also played a, a general in inaugural ball. Uh, very bright uh, Shakespearean actor, uh, and um, Carol Jones, who, uh, who cast this and cast Save the Tiger, uh, first introduced me to uh, Thayer, uh, a, a terrific actor. It's just that you see uh, I fight in clubs, you know, and I'm really a ham and egg, or this guy, he's the best. This is why he says, you, you know, you're an American, aren't you? You know, and his, uh, you know, his uh, patriotism gets challenged. You believe that America is the land of opportunity? Yeah. Paulo Creed does. And he's going to prove it to the whole world by giving an unknown a shot at the title. And that unknown is you. And also, it was uh, 1976 and the, uh, the bicentennial, so it, um, you know, it was a special time. Pass it by. What do you say? All right, fellas, fellas, that's enough pictures. We want to ask Apollo a few questions. Carl Weathers. You know, and so much of the fight game is is looking for some way to elevate his status and to earn more money and to get more screen time on all the venues, so that as a champion, he's a bigger champion. And you know, that's that's the boxing world. It's funny how, in a way, what has happened now is that more of the boxing world is emulating the Rocky world than the Rocky world was emulating boxing world. It's all become a show, you know? Showtime is, like, really gone over the top. When we were trying to do something that was very naturalistic, now everything has, in its own way, become far and far more like a movie. My main man, Rocky... I mean, first of all, Muhammad Ali is such an icon. I mean, as, as athletes go... I'm not so certain that there ever will be anyone who will have the impact on, a, on the world, as an athlete anyway. It had to do with more than just athletics. It had to do with politics. It had to do with race relations. It had to do with war. It had to do with so-called 60s movement. It had to do with so much. I mean, there was so much that, in a way, sort of coincided with this man's ascendance to the heavyweight championship of the world uh, in reality. So how could you not watch Muhammad Ali and everything that went on around Muhammad Ali or everything that went on as a result of Muhammad Ali might be even a more accurate way to look at it. And this guy, if you really look at... What happened because of him, in certain ways, is more amazing than what happened around him. I mean, you know, he inspired so much of these events that transpired. So the Wepner fight, to me, was okay. 
So he beats up another guy. <laughs> Big deal. But what Sylvester saw was this metaphor, in a way, for life. Uh, what he saw was this template for a great idea, for a screenplay. And that's brilliant. I mean, that is what great writers do, what great creators do. An event occurs, and it inspires them to something creative, you know, in their lives. And, and, and have, they have something to say, and this inspires that thing. So, yeah, I saw it, but it didn't strike me the way it struck him. I saw Apollo's, Apollo's life as, in a way, kind of a, a, a mirror of certain elements of um, Muhammad's life. Uh, so that, to me, was more the focus. You know. Erwin Winkler. Because of the budget limitations, we shot it in 29 days. So it was a very, very tight schedule. Most films are shot anywhere between 55 and 80 days. I think what happened is because of the pace that we operated at, it created a certain kind of rhythm in the film. And uh, the film never lags because it always moves, always moves. Uh, and a lot of that is because everybody was on their toes all the time because we just didn't have any time to do anything. This is another case of being your uh, own operator and shooting something in one because as we were uh, rehearsing this and um, shooting it through the uh, camera and we don't have a lot of money and we don't have uh, time to come in and do a lot of uh, coverage, I got the uh, notion of uh, bringing him into this uh, profile and having her uh, in, the, uh, in the background and letting it all uh, work without cuts, and then uh, throwing the focus to her as he uh, walks out. So this, this is some place, a uh, famous place in South Philly that's known for its uh, cheesesteaks. This is Jim's Steaks, a Philly icon, cheesesteak place. And it's amazing how this movie has put certain places in Philadelphia in the map. And when we wanted to eat, we didn't have a trailer. We'd walk into a local pizza place and order pizzas for the crew. We were running around like a, a gypsy company in Philadelphia, stayed in the cheapest hotel rooms. Very often when you see a movie company in the street, you see catering trucks and honey wagons and electrical and grip trucks and wardrobe trucks and camera trucks and campers for the, for the actors and, you know, all kinds of vehicles that kind of line a street from beginning to end. I'll never forget, we had one little Winnebago, and it's hard, even, I don't even know if you call it a Winnebago, it was like a little camper, a tiny little piece, and that served as the honey wagon, so that was the bathroom for the crew. It was also uh, the makeup trailer, it was also where we kept the wardrobe, it was also the production office, it was the Sly's dressing room, and this one, we just, and that's the way we did it. Now we're back in uh, downtown L.A. at this terrible rooming house. And Mickey has to uh, come up and uh, try to get one more uh, chance. Burgess Meredith loved drama and theater and literature. Loved it. And so when you work with somebody like that, who, who never complains, but it was full of, of, of the love of his work and prepared and coming to do his work, it is so stimulating. You know, it's very hard. You... you, you there are a lot of disappointments. You work when you work. You don't always work all the time, obviously. And uh, when you work with somebody like Burgess, you can see 
you know, in that man's face, in that man's voice. The love of his profession and the fact that how he kept himself whole during the good periods and the bad periods, that this was an incredible professional. And it was very inspiring. Well, Burgess is a true poet. He's a, you know, this guy used to be like, uh, he, he would go with the prettiest women on Broadway. He was a big star in the 30s and the 40s. He told me a funny story. He always had a girl around. And I'd go visit him. He lived in Malibu. I'd bring some sauce. I'd make some sauce. And, and he says, yeah, I had this girl over the house, you know. And she was watching this movie of mine from the 40s, you know. And I said, what do you want to watch that crap for? He says, what do you want to watch that crap? He said, no, let me watch. I'm going for a walk. He went on the beach. And comes back. He sees the, the show still on. The back of her head. Is he still watching that crap? There was no answer. He looked. She was sleeping. He said, she fell asleep on the young me. <laughs> and it was the same night that Furpo knocks Dempsey out of ring. The same night. So who gets the publicity? I, I was blessed with Jimmy Crabe, who was a, a, a cameraman who had done it all, just like uh, Mickey's saying now. And, and nothing uh, frightened him. And he wasn't, uh, you know... Um, Bare light bulbs um, weren't weren't a problem, so uh, uh, I can't remember whose uh, idea that was. But um, Jimmy never said anything like, "Oh, you can't do that." It was, you know, okay. Let's see now. How do we do this? Uh, and he also knew all the all the the lyrics from the great show tunes, and uh, uh, he he was a very entertaining guy, and and never got flustered and. Uh, made everything uh, a lot of fun and, and made coming to work always a pleasure. Purchase and I shared a dressing room at the sports arena in one of the locker rooms, which is where we shot the fight in Los Angeles at the sports arena, right, which was supposed to be in Philadelphia, okay? So here we are in this concrete bunker underground in this little dressing room. They didn't have the money to have all these huge motorhomes and stuff that people think actors have in Hollywood. Some of them do, but I didn't, okay? And Burgess didn't. I mean, he was an established actor. This man's, this man's done brilliant work on stage as well as in film, television. And I had seen him growing up. So, I mean, Burgess Meredith was like, whoa, I'm bunking with Burgess, you know? And um, his generosity just touched me so that I really thought, this is a great man. This is a man really that, you know, good grief, man. You like to get to know because this is a good guy. There was no ego. There was no one-upmanship. There was no I'm a big star and you're not. There was none of that stuff. It was just... A fellow actor. Let me give you this knowledge. I want to take care of you. I want to make sure that all this shit that happened to me doesn't happen to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. The first said, listen to me, I want to be your manager. You know, it wasn't uh, Elvira Madigan. This was, uh, you know, a nasty uh, place. The more realistic or ugly the lighting, the better. Because it, it kept you in this, you know, hard scrabble world. 
where these people uh, lived. And, and I told Jamie I didn't want any filters that soften things because by the time the picture ends up in the theater, it's gone through positives and this and that, and, and it's never going to look like it does in the dailies anyway. We shot it uh, pretty much the way it uh, was written, but at the end of this scene, Mickey leaves, and uh, Rocky runs out and uh, puts his arm around him. And when we got finished shooting this scene, because the bathroom was opposite the front door, I said, why don't you go in the bathroom to get away from this guy? And the bathroom really stunk. Oh, it was terrible. So anyway, I said, you know, I never see you go through that transition of, you know, you forgiving him. Let's see how you got there. So we did a, some stuff where he opened the bathroom or came out of the bathroom and, and had the light on his face and we were supposed to see him thinking or something, and, and it was terrible. So I said, well, why don't you just talk to yourself? Come out and spew all this stuff out. You, you know, just, you know, because you didn't spew it out to him. Spew it out. Get it all out of you. And then once it's all out, then you can go. So he said, great. We get set up for the shot. He comes out of the bathroom. That's right. It stinks. He says it stinks because it really did stink in there, too. And it was a great monologue. It was all improvised. and It was terrific. So I say, cut. There was a tear in my eye. And I said, that's great. And the sound man says, no, no, good. I said, what? what's wrong? He said, the battery died. <laughs> so we had to do it again. Uh, with fresh batteries. Guys, comes up offers me a fight. Big deal. Want to fight the fight? Yeah, I'll fight the big fight. I wouldn't want to fight that big fight. It was going to happen to me. I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that. And you want to be ringside and see it? Do you? You want to help me out? And and Sylvester really wailed. Legs ain't working. Nothing's working. They go, go on, fight the chair. Yeah, I'll fight him. My face kicked in. You come around here. You want to move in here with me? Come on here. Come on house. Real nice. Come on here and move. It stinks. This whole place stinks. Want to help me out? Want to help me out? The location helped for the, to, to make the scene because there was this uh, stinky bathroom. And also his uh, being the writer... Uh, and when I said, you know, I never saw you uh, do the uh, transition as the actor and the character, he saw the uh, sense of that and, and came up with this uh, great uh, monologue that he uh, does that where we're able to uh, understand how he got there. So when he finally goes and puts his arm around uh, Mickey in the long shot, it all makes sense. And again, we didn't have time to go and cover that moment. And, and I just thought it all worked in that long shot. And the train going over, it just made it that much, uh, that much more uh, of a moment that the, the audience can, can revel in and not, not interrupt them with, with more coverage. A lot of people figure that you got to light everything. And you got all the, you got a truck full of this stuff, so you got to use it. You know, I've never been a, a fan of that. And, uh, I think the, the more, and certainly in a picture like this, uh, the more realistic you can make it, the better, because the the story isn't realistic. It's a fairy tale. Uh, <laughs> stuff like this never happens in real life. So if you can make it look like it's really happening, 
then it's that much more of a of an event for you emotionally when you see it. And here's where he downs, uh, what is it, four or five uh, egg yolks. God bless him. I think this was one take. very first shot that I did was the shot when he comes out and starts his run in his dispirited sort of training, you know, the early stuff. A lot of that early running stuff, that was at dawn, early in the morning, fiercely cold. And um, I was anxious about even keeping the gear running at that point. That was out near City Hall in Broad Street. You start running, we're using the ambient light of the street lights. Running could go on forever. There wasn't anybody around since we ran away from everybody to say stop. We finally like looked at each other and said, it's enough, you know. I said that and then Stallone looked at me and said, yeah, I think you're right. When we shot these, the Steadicam prototype had been dropped and the motor shaft that ran up at Central Tube, which is something we stopped doing right after that, was rubbing on the tube so that the camera didn't want to run. And when that happened, I sent out for two car batteries, a 12-volt and a 6-volt car battery, because that thing ran on 18 volts at the time. The little batteries that I had with it just wouldn't hack it in the cold, so. Poor Ralph Boda ran up beside me carrying a 12-volt and a 6-volt car battery. It was unbelievable. The Philly shoot was just plain hard work. It was long hours, horrible weather, brutal, bitter cold. You know, it was rough. I have to say, it, you know, it, it had a good spirit. It felt good, but it wasn't no walk in the park. My first task when I got to L.A. was shooting in the meat market. And this is the uh, Culver City Meat Company, uh, Robertson little tiny place. I love this scene. It was, it made so much sense to me and the Steadicam was a perfect instrument for it to be able to, again, like a ghost, drift between these sides of beef and so on. The fact that we could do it without rails in the shot and that it was as agile as it was, door to door, room to room, in and, in and around these amazing objects. To my knowledge, I've never seen anything like any of this. In those days, I learned something about operating this gadget every time I did a shot like that. I learned that I could look away from the screen, which was a pathetic screen again in that day and age, and see where I was going. 
and look back and the shot wouldn't have changed enough to make any difference. I, could, I also learned that I could do it with one hand and feel for the sides of beef with my other hand and feel my way through. I had people spotting me, but you know, there's only so much of that that can be done. We didn't even know how to do that properly. I did my part. These, this is a conventional camera, the close-ups, but I did the walking and strolling part about three or four times. I don't know. Fills gaps, I guess. What's gaps? I don't know, gaps. She's got gaps, I got gaps. Together we fill gaps. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, it's just eloquent. Who the hell knows what a gap is? But you know, it's just eloquence. That's the whole script was like that. He had written hitting the meat, but uh, it wasn't shown how he got into it. And I said, Sylvester, this is what we do. And I said, uh, I'm gonna hit the meat. I'll hit the meat, with all, but burly and big and not not professional. And you just push me aside, take all the anger, what I told you, and start on the meat. And that's how that got composed. You're breaking the ribs. And I, I remember I took a drink and I chickened out, you know, when I when I see him cracking the meat over my face, you know. Yeah, just about who I didn't see this scene in a million years. Look at him. I turned the heat up. Thanks. What Sylvester did, which is so amazing, again, because we looking at this many years later now, is he wrote a very revealing script. He certainly wrote a fascinating female character, but he also wrote about his belief that love is partnership, that the partner is an active part of your life and dream, that it's two people together. Um, and that's really kind of, it was really, really amazing. He didn't let the woman slip into uh, an aside. She had to be part, participate with him. Okay, I'll make the meat. I remember, yeah, I wanted to bring them back together at the end of, uh, end of this. You know, rather than leave him uh, sitting on the sofa by himself and, and her cooking the, uh, the meat, maybe they did go and make love. Who knows? Yo. It's okay. Oh, sorry. Hey.
Sylvester, while he was muscular when we started working on the picture, he certainly didn't have the uh, uh, cut and defined uh, uh, physique that he, he became famous for. And he looked, you know, like a, a boxer who uh, was on the level where uh, Rocky Balboa was, which was far from the top. But when I started uh, shooting the 8 millimeter of their uh, rehearsals and so forth, I remember uh, zooming in on his uh, waistline and uh, showed it to him and encouraged him to um, do more crunches and uh, lay off the, uh, the ice cream. And I think he uh, did because by the time we um, uh, came to shoot the uh, fight, which came at the end of the movie's schedule, he was in better shape than uh, when we began, but certainly not the, the shape uh, that we think of when we see um, Rambo. Uh, and it also is a, uh, uh, I think, more of a realistic shape for this character uh, to be in because he was an enforcer. Yeah, but I really like this girl, you know? And let her train you! Okay, no more fooling around. By the time we ended up uh, shooting the thing, I, th I thought he looked uh, very realistic for, for what we were doing. Now, this... This, uh, in this scene here, there, I tried to get my two sons, Jonathan and Anthony, to be those two kids that go uh, running by at the, uh, the beginning of this uh, scene, and, um, but they couldn't be bothered. Uh, and uh, so <laughs> I just learned recently that, um, that they, uh, evidently they regretted not doing it, and they tell their friends that that was them. very <laughs> sharp. I got another surprise for you. What? My kids! Hey, As a matter of fact, Sly never even, and, and he never forgave us for this, I don't think. We didn't give him an airfare to get to Philadelphia. He went by train, and he took Butkus, the dog, with him, and the dog was sick at the time, and they were locked into a train, for th a little train cabin for three days with him and a sick dog. So he never forgave us for that. Here's the one exterior in L.A. This is um, uh, a scene that we shot right outside of uh, Farmer John or someplace that uh, where I think we shot a big mural on the uh, on the wall, and um, and it's also uh, a place where you'll hear my uh, voice on the track again, and I'm the voice of the. Uh, of the cameraman who's shooting the news interview and he says something like uh, the, the meat guy's sticking his face in or something like that. And uh, Burt Young got the part because Arthur Krim, uh, who's head of United Artists, um, uh, that was a given. He wanted uh, Burt Young to uh, play this guy. And I think um, he had uh, just done a picture with Jimmy Kahn where he played a, a real tough guy. And that had been a UA picture, and um, and that's why uh, uh, Arthur Krim wanted that. There is the next heavyweight champion of the world, Rocky Balboa. Right and it was a great call because uh, Bert Bert uh, brought a, a lot to this character. Charge of the meat. Uh, fine. Would you stand behind it, please? Listen, just settle yourself. Don't just relax. What we're going to do. You know what happened with that scene? Uh, I hung my butcher's coat and hat. I had little teeny trailer and I hung it and it was over the heater which I didn't know it caught fire 
It burned the front of the hat and the apron. And we had no doubles. So we didn't know what to do. So I says, well, you make me stand behind the meat. You know, I'll try to get into the television. And the lady pushes me away. And that's so you wouldn't see the, the coat and you wouldn't see the hat that was burned. And that's how that came about, where she says, uh, your, your, your friend is getting in the camera, and, and, and she pushes me back. And that's how that's got invented, desperation. Friend, the guy over there, he let me in one day, and I hit the beef here, and I kind of liked it. And since I've become a challenger, the owner don't mind neither that I come in. Is this a comment? How many times do you see a, a, a person who is in the field, who's doing interviews or whatever, who's African-American? How many times do you see it, it being a woman and not a man? I mean, there were things about this movie in 1976 that are in their own way very unique that a lot of movies don't seem to capture because whoever's writing it, whoever's producing it, whoever's directing it, sees it through such a narrow little slot. They, they see it from their own personal experiences and their own personal experience are obviously somewhat skewed. But here's a movie with so many little elements like this that I think, hmm, that's brilliant. That's really wild. You know. I mean, when you walk into the world when this guy is in the gym, you look at how many Hispanics, how many African-Americans are in that gym. That's reality, Craig, <laughs> you know, as, as the one kid in, uh, tells his brother, you know, in, in uh, E.T. You know, this is reality, Craig. <laughs> you know, come on. I'll get you some right away. After the fight, I may just retire and run for him. Yeah! The arena is on the program session, and... Uh, Diana Lewis in the Meat House with South Paul Rocky Balboa. I'm walking home like drunk. This drunk comes up to me on the street. You know, the company's there. He said, that ain't drunk. I said, and everybody was trying to push him away, you know. I said, why? He said, that ain't drunk. He said, well, show me. Walk up to the house. He fucking walked up. He, he was, and that's where I got my drunk guy. You know, he, I, I, I doubled over on the gate. Like, I, you know, I, that was from that drunk guy. <laughs> He should have been paid. <laughs> but he was proud because he saw I listened. You know, and that was his vocation, I guess. <laughs> Don't be mad at him. He's just trying to help. Well, I ain't mad. It's just that uh, when reporters around, I'd get out of joint because they'd take cheap shots, and Paul knows that. Oh, this terrible thing. Oh, shit. Are you going to say anything to him? I cracked the wall in the house in here. It's a brother really talking about uh, a sexual relationship between the two of them. And not knowing whether he's furious with it. Is he going to be left out if they marry? You know, where, where, where is he in all of this? And that's another oddball kind of rage. It's an aside. It's not a straight line. And that's more frightening than even in the middle of a ring, this kind of rage. John did eight takes on Sylvester's reaction before he came to me. 
and it was a very hard emotional scene. And I don't cheat, even off camera. I cook. I can't help it. I can't. I can't go through the paces without being there. I'm too shy, you know. But I was mad that he was doing this. Sylvester was looking at me with puzzlement, like he didn't know why, because he wasn't saying a word, and they were shooting the reactions. So finally come around to me, and I was whacking something. I think the bureau pieces on it. Bird is a, is a, is a, is a very fine fighter, an elegant fighter himself, and, and that was not a hollow <laughs> baseball bat. And John kept saying, Bert, just do one line and then hit it. I said, look, I'm fucking mad. I'm mad. I can't. Bert, please, do one line. I, now, that's what I mean. This is where a man is a director or he's not a director. So I would hit something and have to f try to find this goddamn line. It would make more happen. I was mad at him. I was mad at his uh, uh, silliness. I was mad at the, the camera not being on me for seven takes. And to retain line by line exposed it all. He was right. He was right. And that's what a director is. First of all, how the hell do you, you talk to an actor like me and tell me how to do a performance? It's a hard, you know, I, I, I'm usually right. And here's a, another case where the clock was ticking and we didn't have any time to do any uh, uh, coverage. And uh, so I did it with this pan because I didn't have time to, to do uh, coverage. And that little, uh, there's a little um, uh, photograph stuck into the mirror right above the lamp. And that's to cover reflection of a light. And we didn't have any time to do anything about that either. Hey, now, when you walk into the ring for the number one heavyweight of the world, you'll be ready, won't you? Why? Because I waited for 50 years to make you ready. You'll be able to spit nails, kid. Like the guy says, you're going to eat lightning and you're going to crap thunder. I'll tell you something about it, Sly, about Sylvester. I bet they could not push him enough in this. I bet you John could not push him enough in this. Because he was like a rabid dog. He was going to bite somebody. You know, he was foaming at the mouth to be great in this. And as a result, he comes off that way. I don't think anybody could have ever, ever been a better Rocky than he. We got a winner here. We got a chance. Now he goes to the body like nobody you've ever seen. You just stand by for and we're going to win. And this is where Rocky and... Uh, and Paul, you have their reconciliation. Hey, Rob. It's okay I talk to you? Okay, you talk to me. Sure. I felt they both had had enough time to uh, reflect, and, and Rocky uh, regretted not showing a little more uh, understanding, and, and Paulie regretted uh, flying off the handle, and uh, they both wanted the reconciliation. So I didn't feel it needed anything more than that. It definitely was a, a sense of family and, and Rocky's understanding that he, he wanted to bring things together. Since there were endless fields of rubble in Philly at that time, we would just go on and on and on and on. We didn't get any permission, we just uh, did it. This is the Italian market, and it was cold. They light these barrels of fire to keep their hands warm. 
I sat on a, an egg crate or something on the back of that van and just fired out the back of it. Guy threw the orange and it, it all just happened. And I think this is the first ever vehicle shot of this sort. This is a 50 mil lens and it still looks smooth as glass in the background. It was kind of a revelation each time we did one of these new things to see it. Sylvester knew how to do this, this hitting the bag business. He certainly uh, knew how to do it when the time came and he did it well. I think Stallone did get in, in better and better shape as this thing progressed. Or his acting sold us that that was happening. And I remember Sylvester was at that looping, the dubbing or looping. And he said, where do you hear this music? And where do you hear this? He said, this is, he was so happy. <laughs> he said, nobody knows what we've got here. He was so happy. You know, this was the moment before. I love this uh, uh, footage, and I kept asking Bill to make it longer because I liked, uh, I liked all this stuff. You're going to kill him. This was shot out of the side of a van. That is the Moshalu, one of the last grain trade steel sailing ships. And Stallone actually put on a burst of speed at the end of this shot and shocked us all. I mean, it was amazingly fast. In conjunction with Conti's music, that was a fabulous moment. I kind of look at this shot and cringe nowadays, but it is kind of iconic. And they are running up the steps of the art museum in Philly to this day. Become a tourist thing. This was shot the same day when he ran up the stairs and he couldn't do it. It was just a, a, an hour or so later because the sun had come up a bit more. But it was the same day. And this shot is backwards. Originally, I was in and I zoomed back. And then when I saw it, I said, shit, I wish I had, I had zoomed in. So I sent it over to the lab and they reversed it. So he's doing that backwards. Now, here he was supposed to go to the uh, uh, Mickey's uh, gym and look at the 60-millimeter films of Apollo fighting all these guys, and, and he comes to the realization, wait a second, I haven't got a chance against this guy. Well, we never had the time or the money to shoot that uh, stuff. And I also uh, realized we'd never have the, uh, the money to fill this place up, the sports arena. So I said, look, rather than... Uh, uh, go and see these 60-millimeter uh, fil films that we haven't shot yet and we can't figure out how we're going to afford to do it. Why doesn't he go to the arena and look how big the place is and just be uh, intimidated by it? And uh, he comes uh, home and he says, I haven't got a chance. So they liked that idea. Then we wanted these two big uh, posters at uh, either end of the uh, uh, place. And uh, there was a lot of reluctance to spend the money on it. And they finally said, okay. But then it turns out, and they arrived the day we uh, shot this thing, that they, uh, they used the, a, a Polaroid to paint the picture from, and he wasn't w wearing the right trunks. So it's not going to be the trunks that he's going to have in the fight. So I said, well, look, we'll have the promoter come in. He'll complain to the promoter. The promoter doesn't give a damn. He'll say everything will be fine. And we feel for the guy again. 
And so here's, here's another example of not having the dough, and it worked to our advantage. Rocky, what brings you here tonight? Mr. Jurgis, the post is wrong. I remember seeing it uh, in, the, in, the, in the Director's Guild. I didn't want to see it in a preview. And I knew we had made something very curious and very offbeat, and I wasn't sure how it would total up, because it was, it just was different. And the visual techniques we were using with the Steadicam, I knew was going to place it, uh, give it a, a difference. And when I saw it, I was very, very uh, moved by the purity of it and the uniqueness of the genre. It, it kind of was its own little piece. And we still live by demographics, unfortunately. And demographics were a big deal in, starting in the 70s. You were always trying to slot a movie or a trend or whatever. And at the time Rocky came out, it didn't fit any of the demographics. And that's always wonderful when that sort of, when you're making a movie that shifts things. It breaks a trend, it becomes a trend. Um, and it, it's very healthy when that happens. So one is always waiting for the next sort of Rocky to come, which really means that it lives outside of all of these demographics, that really is born uh, more out of people's intuition and soul. It really, that's what we should be relying on anyway. Sylvester is uh, like a family member to me. He's, you know, again, I come from boys, brothers, so he's like the third brother. So there was an instant sense of family. John Avelson was wonderful about rehearsing us and bringing to create this sense of an ensemble. Not shot for shot, but really what it's like to go buy the clothes and to come together or to try to steep us in the circumstances uh, that these unique characters uh, we're, we're going to uh, journey through. And it paid off. Apollo? Yeah. I've been out there walking around, thinking. I mean, who am I kidding? I ain't even in the guy's league. Well, this is where he says, uh, you know, I, uh, if I can go the distance, then I'm just another, not just another bum from the neighborhood, which is the... Um, is what it's all about, you know, and uh, and I remember the um, when we were uh, shooting that, and he's lying there with his eyes open, and I said, okay, and then you close your eyes, and uh, Sylvester says, no, I don't think he closes his eyes, and I said, I think you're right, and that's just what you uh, what you uh, remembered was that this guy isn't going to sleep. <laughs> Come on, Adrian, it's true. Was nobody. That don't matter either, you know. Because I was thinking. Do you notice how clean it is? What audacity! In the front end of this movie, Adrian has has maybe kissed a dog or a, a bird or something, and by the by midway, she has invited herself into her life with him, and and I I marvel at that because it's done with again I use the word innocence and health, you know. But, uh, no, she's not doing any decorating. She's fixing herself up. But we were experimenting with, with curling my hair here and there, but, you know, we weren't. There were just very few, if I remember, a different bed. I want to know for the first time in my life, see? 
And when we did uh, shoot the, the big fight at the end, we promoted uh, a few hundred people to come and, uh, and watch and gave them a free lunch. And there were about 30 or 40 old people from some retirement home. And they put them in the wrong seats, and they were so old we couldn't move them again. So we never shot that part. But if you look real carefully, you can see the place is basically empty. We shot the sequence backwards. In other words, the, the last round was the first thing we shot. Because that took the longest time to get him in makeup with his face all brutalized. So we, we kept taking the makeup off. And it was also the last round where we had, uh, where we saw all the extras uh, with their posters and all that sort of stuff. And we got rid of all of them on the first day because we couldn't afford to keep them. And Bill Cassidy uh, storyboarded that, the, the whole uh, sequence. And again, uh, an example of where the, uh, the lack of dough uh, came in. When uh, uh, the robe, Rocky's robe, uh, uh, shows up, it, it showed up just before we, uh, uh, we shot it, and it was huge. Uh, and it looked ridiculous. So I said, uh, listen, we, you know, we can't pretend this thing doesn't look ridiculous, so you've got to complain about it. You know, say to, uh, say to Adrian, you don't, think, don't you think this thing's a little big? And he, and he did, you know, because he had, uh, you know, um, uh, stallion across his butt rather than on his back. This robe is too big, you know. Good luck. Don't leave town. It was uh, another example of, of a mistake, um, using the mistake and pretending uh, that it was how we, how we wanted it to be. He had a great sense of humor throughout the thing. And, uh, and Sylvester does. He has a, a terrific sense of humor. It made, the, it made the character that much more engaging. Well, what do you get out of it? We did a lot of study cam here, taking these guys into the ring. And the difference in style. You can quote a recent sports magazine which said, could be the caveman against the cavalier. I notice a buzzing in the background now, Bill. Could be the challengers getting ready to get into the ring. Okay! Give me my dates! Toss me $200! Oh, I gotta go, I gotta work. How's the road? A 50-to-1 underdog living a Cinderella story. Hamilton did a really, really good job on this film, I think. He really understood it. Hey, thanks for showing up. And his record, 44 victories. He's had 38 by knockout, and he's lost more times. Yeah, which makes me wonder, can he stand it? You know, the stamina and the skill to last the three rounds, because Las Vegas odds say no. Look at this collection of souls in the, in the ring watching before the fight. It rings very true. There's a lot of noise coming from the background. You can go deaf with that noise. Yeah, the spotlight. seeing right back there? Is that the world heavyweight champion? Oh, I got to tell you, that was something I did not want to do. I talked to John Abelson. I was, I'll tell you what my concern was. My concern was it was really... It was my concern at the time was it could be construed as kind of, kind of the opposite of blackface. It was kind of like a minstrel kind of thing. I was really concerned about that, and I told John Abelson that at the time. And I mean, I didn't put in those exact words, but I told him about it. I really, I thought that was like 
man, this ain't gonna come off well. You know, I'm I'm gonna be chewed up. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'm an actor, and I'm really concerned about how I appear in the film, and how this character appears. But now suddenly he's kind of going into this mode, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, what? Wait a minute, now this is really kind of shaky ground. And John, to his credit, listened. You know, that's that's one of the hardest things I think for a director to do. Really, just listen. Number one, and hear the actor. And, and he heard me, and needless to say, I did it anyway, so he must have been successful in convincing me to do what he wanted me to do. But what he did do was he assured me that if this did not work, if this, didn't, if this came off wrong, if it came off anywhere near where it looked like something about this was not right, he was not going to let it happen. He was not going to include it in the film. Well... When you look at it, it comes off as one of the best moments in the film because Apollo is just milking it for all it's worth. I mean, he is the consummate actor, you know? And he's doing something by turning the whole George Washington thing on its ear, so to speak, you know, which is in keeping with this whole thing. And the hat and the whole... I mean, I was just concerned about all this stuff, that it wasn't too much, you know? And uh, thank God it, it all worked. This is one of the few uh, stock shots um, of those big crowds. There was a stock footage from some fight. And also, I had such... You see the, 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 the ropes? I always said, now, this is a big championship fight, so we got to cover up these naugahyde ropes with, like, red velvet. And I was always, told, oh, yeah, we'll get the red velvet for the ropes. Day before the fight, night before the fight, they hadn't... Uh, had, nobody had gotten the red velvet. Oh, and I was so pissed. And um, uh, I think it was a costume lady. He said, well, we can get some red felt. Not velvet, but at least it's red. And we stayed up half the night uh, cutting these strips of uh, red uh, felt and, and, and double-faced uh, tape to uh, cover up these cheesy-looking uh, naugahyde uh, ropes. That's one of my favorite moments with Joe Frazier because I'd never met him, and, uh, and I had such fun, and he was such a game participant he went with the whole thing so i could just kind of you know go crazy i mean none of that stuff was written we just had fun with it you know and so there were such great moments and such great memories as a result of we wanted to uh to get as many uh ex-champs to be at the uh, final fight as we uh we could but uh, nobody had heard of any of us and uh and the only guy that showed up was uh joe frazier which worked to our advantage because he was from uh, Philadelphia. Once I got the job, I looked at uh, a lot of boxing movies and I said, these things look terrible. The boxing looks so phony. And the only way we're going to get this to look uh, real is if we, if we practice a lot. So they, they bought into that. A few weeks before we even started to shoot the picture, I got them into the ring together out here in Santa Monica. So Carl and Sylvester get in the ring, and one says, well, I'll do this and I'll do that. And I go, wait, 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 I'll be here all day. Sylvester, why don't you go home and write it out? Right, he does a left, he ducks, he falls down, whatever you want, write it out. And we'll do it like a ballet, and we'll learn it. And he said, okay. So the next day he came back with like 32 pages of lefts and rights, and that's what we started to learn. Every day before we started to, uh, to shoot, we rehearsed it for a few hours. I eight millimetered it, 
and we got better and better at it. Broke the each round into four uh, sections, and they really got it down. And I showed them the eight millimeter about how bad it looked, and that inspired them to make it better. By the time we uh, shot it, which was at the end of the schedule, it looked good. And there's the bell for round one. The most publicized fight of the age as the fighters come out, come into the center of the ring, looking at each other. Rocky just looking. Creed, the champions. Now this is um, where all these uh, weeks and weeks of, uh, of uh, rehearsal and uh, Sylvester uh, writing out each uh, punch, each left and right, and, and also learning uh, to take the punch because uh, snapping your head back uh, like you had just been hit is a big part of making this look real. Sylvester had it pretty much mapped out as to how I mean, obviously, he and John and all the powers that be had talked about this stuff, and so I came in pretty much after the fact, you know, and gave my two cents as we went along. But he had it pretty much choreographed, and the ring was divided into these quarters like a clock. And so we knew 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And that's how we would choreograph the fight, so that we knew at certain times where we were supposed to be and we knew what the punches and the combinations were going to be. So you'd really rehearse this thing down to a ballet. I also liked keeping the camera out of the ring and going through the ropes for most of it because that's how most of us see the fight. And it was before the days of uh, where the, the video camera would be right on the ropes and shooting past the ropes uh, the way we see it now on television. I was sort of a wild card because I was able to do some stuff uh, walking around the ring and being, somebody said, pulled around the ring. I don't remember that, but I guess that's true, on some kind of weird cart. We had three or four, maybe uh, maybe uh, five cameras uh, for the fight. You'd really rehearse this thing down to ballet, you know, a very, very, very uh, specific dance. And within the context of that, you were then able to move you know, appropriately, but you couldn't vary too far from it because I mean, if you deviated a lot, you get somebody hurt. You know? You're supposed to throw a left, so the guy is moving you know, to his right. Well, if you throw a right, you're going to clock him, and sometimes that happened. <laughs> you know, we were not perfect. At least he wasn't. Sylvester wasn't. I was pretty darn near perfect. You want to get away from the fight as little as possible because that's what everybody's thinking about. But then you also have to keep the story alive and the, the various characters. So you want to, you want to go to the cutaways uh, as economically as possible and make each one really work for you and not do it arbitrarily. And I, and I like the process because, you know, you're left alone and there's nobody telling you you've got to stop because it's lunch. And, and it's your last chance. You know, it's the last chance to save your ass. The body, the body. Here we go, round two. Creed predicted he would win it in three. Since they had all the cameras, they had a limited amount of time in the crowd. All the cameras were firing away all at once, so I could walk around there without, you know, calling attention to myself. If you look closely in the wide shots, this character with a striped shirt on is me walking around. They weren't happy that I had a striped shirt that day. And you can see the steady cam. You can see uh, uh, Garrett in one of these uh, shots, uh, one of the wider shots. You can see him moving around. Stop playing around with a group of people. Stop playing around. And he says he wants more. He wants more.
movies are magnificent. I mean, film is, you know, this stuff you can just play with. And if the images are there, man, look at what you can create. Uh, to me, even, I mean, I'm always just, I don't know, just amazed at how brilliant some filmmakers uh, can be, what they deliver. You know? And here's stuff, I mean, John's choices of how to shoot this, the editing on this film is really brilliant editing, too. I mean, many people don't even mention that. Hey, this is going to be a tough one. Now we have a, some of our very few uh, dissolves taking us uh, uh, through, the, uh, through the various rounds. And I think, I think when we get to the 14th round, you're going to see some punches to the uh, ribs uh, where it's the, uh, the, same, the same punch twice uh, from two different cameras. But it looks like uh, instead, of, instead of him punching him two times, it looks like he punched him four times. And it's just the, uh, the same thing done twice. And again, when you're cutting the stuff yourself, you have no inhibitions doing that. Whereas if you were cutting somebody else's stuff, you might not want to do that because, you know, it's such a big sheet. Um, but nobody is, uh, nobody's ever uh, commented on it. And then once we got in the ring, the great thing about it was being able to wheel around 360 degrees and pick the over-the-shoulder that you wanted, and it was great for concealing fake punches, among other things. And also, it felt sort of like a referee's eye view. It kind of became and then unbecame and became again the referee's eye view, which is a trick of filmmaking that I always loved, which is a shot which holds somebody's shoulder and then goes beyond them and just, you know, morphs into their point of view, as we say. There were, of course, conventional cameras on the fight, but a lot of the job was staying away from great hunks of the sports arena that didn't have people in. That's an enormous thing. Now I think you're going to see uh, the same punch twice. One with a 75 millimeter and, and one with 150 probably. Those, those are the, uh, the same ones twice. No, and there's the, the steady cam. Garrett's got that striped camera at about one o'clock. That striped shirt rather. We had a very gifted first AD who managed to keep that crowd quite excited and, you know, they gave away stuff at intervals and, of course, nobody knew who Stallone was. There were no stars there to attract them. It was just a spectacle. And Jimmy Cray very wisely, you know, kept the backgrounds dark enough that in some shots you could get away with no peeps back there at all. You stop this fight, I'll kill you. And also got them to string those uh, Christmas tree lights up in the uh, stadium there because um, otherwise it would be just black up there because we never had lights to light it up. We couldn't light it up. There was nobody there. And there's Frank Sr., Sylvester's dad, on the bell. We were all enthralled with the, in the dailies with the spit and the sweat and the cloud of backlit drops of moisture that would fly. I mean, one of these punches went... 
And here's the steady cam inside the ring. Obviously enough, I was hired to shoot on Raging Bull and shortly afterward fired because what they were getting looked like Rocky and um, Scorsese didn't want Raging Bull to look like Rocky. But Rocky was the first film in which that kind of floating magic human-like point of view looked at boxes. <laughs> this is Sylvester Stallone that's got the brain damage, not Rocky. I mean, Rocky is smart <laughs> compared to Sylvester Stallone. He's yelling, Carl, hit me harder, hit me harder. Ain't gonna be no rematch. Ain't gonna be no rematch. The war war. And this was something that we uh, put in later about uh, don't want a rematch and, you know, ain't going to be a rematch, don't want one. Rocky, you went the distance, you went the 15 rounds, how do you feel? What are you thinking about? First time we shot the movie, what you see is actually a reshoot. The end was actually Apollo Creed being carried out on people's shoulders and they were chanting Apollo, Apollo, Apollo. Obviously, someone decided that that wasn't a proper ending. I think they made the right decision. I think seeing Rocky saying, yo, Adrian, I did it, just that's what the movie's about. It's about committing and, in the end, living up to your commitment. I remember uh, Sylvester said to some, and he did it just, when he, I remember this red, this lamp, this lampshade, this orange lampshade. Somewhere around there, when we had cut, there was a pause, and Sylvester said to everybody, you don't know what we're making here. This is going to be a great movie. You don't know what we're doing, and indeed, I mean, you have to understand that we we were very low budget. I don't even know if we had a real lunch. <laughs> but there was Sylvester doing this bizarre character, and no one had quite ever, ever seen anything like this, you know, before. And there wasn't this great, you know, unity or quiet on the set that, in fact, you know, they're making something extraordinary. So I have to tell you, I admire Sylvester so much because he, he knew all the way through that he was making something great, and so did Avelson. Now, for me, I read a great script. Um, I can usually figure it out on the page. There was something remarkable about this piece. And it could have gone the wrong direction. It didn't. I mean, when you hear the music come on, it just, everything was framed correctly. They decided to tell this tale in a really, uh, well, it, it, was a, it, was, it was folk art, you know? He was a folk character. It, was, it, was, it had that wonderful mythological feeling about it. Well, it's been a nice visit. Let me, let me, let me leave you with uh, one last thing. You should have a good script. What happens is, more often than people know, is that the, it ain't a good script. The movie gets put together by personalities, and then the director and everybody's there forever after trying to fight to make something presentable. I used to always wonder what happens if you start with something. You know, you got kids that write. You got, especially first-time authors, they write with their heart. You know, just make yourself available to these people. Start with something. This, we had gold. 
on the page. So anything that was an addition was become platinum. But we had gold, thanks to that goofball.